Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. And I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. Let me cut to the chase. Matt Levine, my colleague on the Bloomberg Opinion side of the house, is perhaps the greatest finance blogger ever to do it. And in what is both a flex and a service, he's just written tens of thousands of words on the subject of crypto for a special issue of Bloomberg Businessweek. Matt's gone deep into the blockchain to break down its origins, its possible futures, and the current state of a technology that's showing up everywhere in industries ranging from finance to shipping to, of course, video games. And we're going to be bringing his exploration to you in audio form. Thanks to the talents of Bloomberg editor and professional voice actor Mark Ladoff, you'll get weekly chapters of the special crypto issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Welcome to the third chapter of the special audio edition of the Bloomberg Business Week crypto issue, written by Matt Levine and narrated by Mark Ladoff. Missed a chapter? You can find previous episodes right here in the Bloomberg Crypto podcast feed. Part two. What does it mean? Okay, then. I've described in some detail the workings of the thing, Bitcoin, that Satoshi Nakamoto invented. But let's take a step back. What exactly is it that he invented? The simplest answer is that he invented Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a big thing. At its peak, the total value of Bitcoin in the world was more than $1 trillion. There are thousands of articles about it. It has lots of investors and fans and believers. Some of these people are called Bitcoin maximalists, They believe the only really interesting and valuable thing in the world of crypto is Bitcoin. Those people could stop here, I guess. There it is, Bitcoin. Here, though, I want to keep going. I want to talk about different ways that you might generalize Satoshi's invention. There are different ways to interpret what Satoshi was up to and what he accomplished, and each interpretation points you to a different direction for crypto. A. A store of value. A minimal generalization of Bitcoin is something like, Satoshi invented a technology for people to send numbers to one another. That's not nothing. Before Satoshi, I could have written you an email that said 132.51, but you'd have no way of knowing whether I had the 132.51 on my computer or whether I'd already sent the 132.51 to someone else, and you'd have no way of proving to other people that you now had the 132.51 on your computer and could send it to them. I realize that paragraph sounds very stupid, because it is. You definitely have 132.51 on your computer, as well as every other conceivable number. 
Computers can generate numbers arbitrarily and more or less for free. Open a spreadsheet, type 132.51, and there you go. In a sense, the technological accomplishment of Bitcoin is that it invented a decentralized way to create scarcity on computers. Bitcoin demonstrated a way for me to send you a computer message so that you'd have it and I wouldn't. To move items of computer information between us in a way that limited their supply and transferred possession. But the technological accomplishment is not the whole story. Arguably, not even the most important part. The wild thing about Bitcoin is not that Satoshi invented a particular way for people to send numbers to one another and call them payments. It's that people accepted the numbers as payments. There's nothing inherent in the technology that would make that happen. People might have read the Bitcoin white paper and said, huh, this is a cool way to send payments, but your problem is that you aren't sending dollars. You're sending this thing you just made up, and who wants that? Well, most of them did say that initially, but lots of people eventually decided that Bitcoin was valuable. That's weird. Satoshi was like, I have invented a payment system that works great. The only problem is that instead of getting paid in dollars, you get paid in this thing I just made up. Is that cool? And enough people were like, yeah, that's cool, that now crypto is a trillion-dollar business. That social fact that Bitcoin was accepted by many millions of people as having a lot of value might be the most impressive thing about Bitcoin, much more than the stuff about hashing. Shitcoins. Here's another extremely simple generalization of Bitcoin. One, you can make up an arbitrary token that trades electronically. Two, if you do that, people might pay a non-zero amount of money for it. Three, worth a shot, no? As Bitcoin became more visible and valuable, people just did that? There was a rash of new cryptocurrencies that were sometimes subtle variations on Bitcoin and sometimes just lazy knockoffs. Shitcoins is the mean name for them. In 2013, two software engineers threw together a cryptocurrency and gave it a logo of Doge, the talking Shiba Inu meme. They called it Dogecoin, and it was a parody of the coin boom. It's worth about $8 billion today. I'm not going to explain that to you. Nobody is going to explain that to you. Certainly the guys who invented Dogecoin don't understand it. One of them has taken to Twitter to say he hates it. It's just like if you're making up an arbitrary token that trades electronically and you hope people will buy it for no particular reason, you might as well make it fun. Slap a talking dog on it. Give people stuff to make jokes about online. Incidentally, here's a fun argument that was made against Bitcoin early in its life. One, there's a limited supply of Bitcoin. Two, but the Bitcoin software is open source and can be cloned trivially. Three, so if the price of Bitcoin gets above, you know, $100, someone will just invent Blitcoin, which will be an exact copy of Bitcoin. Four, Bitcoin is arbitrary and Blitcoin is arbitrary, so there's no reason that Blitcoin should trade at much of a discount to Bitcoin. Five, this will dilute the value of Bitcoin, any sensible person would rather pay $90 for Blitcoin than $105 for Bitcoin, since they're the same thing, but one is cheaper. Six, therefore, there's an infinite supply of Bitcoin or things that are exactly like it, so the value of Bitcoin cannot get too high. This argument turned out to be mostly wrong. Socially, cryptocurrency is a coordination game. 
people want to have the coin that other people want to have, and some sort of abstract technical equivalence doesn't make one cryptocurrency a good substitute for another. Social acceptance, legitimacy, is what makes a cryptocurrency valuable, and you can't just copy the code for that. That's a revealing fact. What makes Bitcoin valuable isn't the elegance of its code, but its social acceptance. Another advantage that Bitcoin has over a hypothetical copycat, more miners. A big, diverse pool of miners keeps a cryptocurrency's blockchain more secure than a small, concentrated pool. But that security is just an instantiation of its broader social acceptance. All the Bitcoin miners could quit and become Bitcoin miners. They just don't. A thing that worked exactly like Bitcoin, but didn't have Bitcoin's lineage, didn't descend from Satoshi's Genesis block and was just made up by some copycat, would have the same technology, but none of the value. 2. An uncorrelated asset. Here's another generalization of Bitcoin. 1. Satoshi made up an arbitrary token that trades electronically for some price. 2. The price turns out to be high and volatile. 3. The price of an arbitrary token is... arbitrary? This may not sound that great to you, but it's very interesting as a matter of finance theory. Modern portfolio theory demonstrates that adding an uncorrelated asset to a portfolio can improve returns and reduce risk. Big institutions will invest in timberland or highway tolls or hurricane insurance because they think that those things won't act just like stocks or bonds, that they'll diversify their portfolios, that they'll hold up even in a world where stocks go down. To the extent that the price of Bitcoin, one, mostly goes up, though with lots of ups and downs along the way, and two, goes up and down for reasons that are arbitrary and mysterious and not tied to, like corporate earnings or the global economy, then Bitcoin is interesting to institutional investors. There are variations. For instance, one, Bitcoin is not just uncorrelated to regular financial stuff. It's a hedge to inflation. If the Federal Reserve is printing money recklessly, the dollar will lose value, but Bitcoin is in limited supply and will maintain its value even as the dollar is inflated away. Two, Bitcoin is like gold, but more convenient. The value of gold is also somewhat arbitrary and mysterious, but it's a store of value that's not tied to corporate earnings and central bank policy. Investors who like gold should buy Bitcoin. Well, those are some things that people said. In practice, it turns out that the price of Bitcoin is pretty correlated with the stock market, especially tech stocks. Bitcoin hasn't been a particularly effective inflation hedge. Its price rose during years when U.S. inflation was low, and it's fallen this year as inflation has increased. The right model of crypto prices might be that they go up during broad speculative bubbles when stock prices go up, and then they go down when those bubbles pop. That's not a particularly appealing story for investors looking to diversify. You want stuff that goes up when the broad bubbles pop. 3. GameStop I'm not going to dwell on the meme stock phenomenon here. I dwelt on it in this publication last December. But one important possibility is that the first generalization of Bitcoin, that an arbitrary tradable electronic token can become valuable just because people want it to, permanently broke everyone's brains about all of finance. Before the rise of Bitcoin, the conventional thing to say about a share of stock was that its price represented the market's expectation of the present value of the future cash flows of the business. But 
Bitcoin has no cash flows. Its price represents what people are willing to pay for it. Still, it has a high and fluctuating market price. People have gotten rich buying Bitcoin. So people copied that model, and the creation of and speculation on pure, abstract, scarce electronic tokens became a big business. A share of stock is a scarce electronic token. It's also something else, a claim on cash flows or whatever. But one thing that it is, is an electronic token that's in more or less limited supply. If you and your buddies online want to make jokes and invest based on those jokes, then, depending on your sense of humor and which online chat group you're in, you might buy either Dogecoin or GameStop Corp stock. And for your purposes, those things are not that different. B. A distributed computer. Here's another very different generalization of Bitcoin. In its sharpest form, it's mostly attributed to programmer Vitalik Buterin, another colorful character whom we won't discuss. If you're curious, there are two books by former Bloomberg journalists about the early days of Ethereum, in which Vitalik is the star, but by no means the only important player. Camilla Russo's The Infinite Machine and Matthew Lysing's Out of the Ether. Buterin's sketch of Bitcoin goes like this. 1. Look, this thing you made is a big, sprawling computer. The blockchain is doing the functions of a computer. Specifically, it's keeping a database of Bitcoin transactions. 2. This computer has some fascinating properties. It's distributed. The computer's data aren't kept on any one particular machine, but spread out among lots of nodes. The blockchain creates a mechanism to make sure they all agree on what the database says. It's decentralized. Different people run the database on their own separate machines. It's secure and final. Because of how transactions are encoded into blocks, it's more or less impossible for someone to reach back into the database and change a transaction from last week. And it's trustless and permissionless. Anyone who wants to can download the blockchain or mine Bitcoin. The mining mechanism gives people incentives to collaborate and compete with one another to keep the database secure and up-to-date. 3. But it's not a very good computer. Mostly, it just keeps a list of payments. We'll be right back with more from Bloomberg Businessweek's special crypto issue, written by Matt Levine and narrated by Mark Ladorf. Four, let's do the same thing, but make it a good computer. One, Ethereum. The computer that Vitalik invented. Like Satoshi, Vitalik Buterin is widely referred to in the crypto world by his first name. Is generally called Ethereum, or the Ethereum Virtual Machine. It's a virtual computer, distributed among thousands of redundant nodes. Each node knows the state of the computer, what's in its memory, and each transaction on the system updates that state. Ethereum works a lot like Bitcoin. People create transactions. They broadcast them to the network. The transactions are included in a block. The blocks get chained together. Everyone can see every transaction, etc. The currency of the Ethereum blockchain is called, I don't know, it's common to call it Ether, though sometimes people say Ethereum, and often they just write ETH. Similarly, Bitcoin is sometimes written BTC. In conversation, it's mostly shortened to ETH. But whereas Bitcoin transactions are mostly about sending payments, that's an exaggeration, there is a scripting language in Bitcoin and some ability to write programs. Actions on Ethereum are conceived of more generally. 
Ethereum is a big virtual computer, and you send it instructions to do stuff on the computer. Some of those instructions are, send 10 Ether from address X to address Y. One thing in the computer's memory is a database of Ethereum addresses and how much Ether is in each of them, and you can tell the computer to update the database. But you can also write programs to run on the computer to do things automatically. One sort of program might be, send 10 Ether to address Y if something happens. Alice and Bob might want to bet on a football game, or on a presidential election, or on the price of Ether. Alice and Bob, by the way, are stock characters in discussions of crypto. Not interesting characters, though. They might write a computer program on the Ethereum virtual machine to do that. The program would have its own Ethereum account where it could keep Ether, and its programming logic would say something like, if the Jets win on Sunday, or if Joe Biden wins the election, or if Ether trades above $1,500 on November 1st, then send the money in this account to Alice. Otherwise, send it to Bob. Alice and Bob might then each send one Ether to the account, which would whir along for a bit checking the football scores or the election results or the Ether price. How would it check? The standard solution in crypto is called an oracle. It's a program that will periodically query some company or website that tracks the relevant information, election results, football scores, weather, etc., and posts the answer to the Ethereum blockchain. An oracle is essentially a way to bring information from the outside world, the real world, or just the internet, onto the blockchain. When the program had an answer to its question, who won the game or the election or is Ether above $1,500, it would automatically resolve the bet and send two Ether to the winner. Or you could have a program that says, if anyone sends one Ether to this program, the program will send them back something nice. Something nice is pretty hazy there, and frankly, it's pretty hazy in actual practice, but in concept, anything that you can put into a computer program could be the reward here. So, send me one ether and I will send you back a digital picture of a monkey would be one possible program. And I guess it sounds like I'm joking, but for a while, digital pictures of monkeys were selling for millions of dollars on Ethereum. Or there's a thing called the Ethereum Name Service, or ENS, which allows people to register domain names like MatthewLevine.eth and use them across various Ethereum functions. You send Ether to the ENS program and it registers that name to you. You send in money and it sends you back a domain. The standard analogy here is a vending machine. A vending machine is a computer in the real world where you put in a dollar and you get back something you want. You don't negotiate with the vending machine or make small talk about the weather while it rings you up. The vending machine side of the transaction is entirely automated. Its programming makes it respond deterministically to you putting in money and pressing buttons. In the crypto world, these programs are called smart contracts. The name is a bit unfortunate. A smart contract is a computer program that runs on the blockchain. Some smart contracts look like contracts. Alice and Bob's bet on the price of Ethereum looks a lot like a financial derivative, which is definitely a contract. Some smart contracts look like vending machines. They sit around in public waiting for people to put money in, and then they spit out goods. A vending machine is not exactly a normal contract, but it is a transaction, and people who are into philosophizing about contracts like thinking about vending machines. But some smart contracts just look like, you know, computer programs. The concept is more general than the name. In the Ethereum white paper, Vitalik Buterin wrote, Note that contracts in Ethereum should not be seen as something that should be fulfilled or complied with. 
Rather, they are more like autonomous agents that live inside of the Ethereum execution environment, always executing a specific piece of code when poked by a message or transaction, and having direct control over their own Ether balance and their own key value store to keep track of persistent variables. There are limits. Ethereum is a distributed computer, but it doesn't have a keyboard and a monitor. It would be hard to play Call of Duty on the Ethereum virtual machine. But Ethereum's blockchain and smart contracts can serve as sort of a back-end to other types of programs. Developers build dApps, or decentralized apps, on Ethereum and other blockchains. These are computer programs that mostly run on the web, perhaps on some centralized or cloud server, but keep some of their essential data on the blockchain. You play a computer game, and your character's attributes are stored on the blockchain. A normal program on the game company's servers renders the character's sword on your screen, but the fact that she has the sword is stored on the blockchain. One other limit is that it's a slow computer. The way Ethereum executes programs is that you broadcast the instructions to thousands of nodes on the network, and they each execute the instructions and reach consensus on the results of the instructions. That all takes time. Your program needs to run thousands of times on thousands of computers. Computers and network connections are pretty fast these days, and the Ethereum computer is fast enough for many purposes, such as transferring Ether or keeping a database of computer game characters. But you wouldn't want to use this sort of computer architecture for extremely time-sensitive, computation-intensive applications. You wouldn't want, like, a self-driving car running on the Ethereum virtual machine. You wouldn't want thousands of computers around the world redundantly calculating how far you are from hitting someone before you could break. 2. Proof of Stake This distributed computer, the Ethereum virtual machine, takes its basic design from Bitcoin. There are blocks. Everyone can see them. They are chained together. Transactions are signed with private keys. Everything is hashed, etc., it's just that in addition to sending money to people, you can send computer instructions to the blockchain, and the blockchain will execute them. What that means is that there are thousands of computers each running nodes of the Ethereum network, and all those computers will agree about what happens on that network, who sent money to whom, and what computer instructions executed when. The fact that Ethereum is a distributed virtual computer means that all those actual computers can come to a consensus about what operations executed when. And the reason this was possible is that Bitcoin showed how a decentralized computer network could reach consensus. The stuff with the hashing and the mining and the nonces and the electricity, that is Bitcoin's consensus mechanism, proof of work, or POW. Until last month, it was also Ethereum's. There were some technical differences, but the basic mechanics were pretty similar. Miners did a bunch of hashes of block data, and whoever found the right hash first mined the block and got a reward. Because this was expensive and wasted a lot of resources, it demonstrated a commitment to the Ethereum ecosystem. But the waste itself was bad. And so on September 15th, after years of planning, Ethereum switched to a new consensus mechanism. Ethereum now uses something called proof-of-stake, or POS. The basic ideas remain the same. People do transactions and broadcast them to the Ethereum network. A bunch of computers, in POW they're called miners, in POS they're called validators, work to compile these transactions into an official ordered list, called the blockchain. Anyone with a computer can be a miner validator. The protocol is open to everyone. 
but the miners' validators have to prove their commitment to the system to mine or validate blocks. In POW, the way you prove that is by using a lot of electricity to do hashes. In POS, the way you prove that is by having a lot of ether. Oversimplifying a bit, the general mechanics are 1. Anyone can volunteer to be a validator by staking some of the network's currency, depositing it into a special smart contract. The staked currency can't be withdrawn for some period. On Ethereum, you need to stake 32 Ether, currently $40,000 or so, to be a validator. 2. Validators get transactions as they come in and compile them into blocks. Note, in fact, there is a division of labor in Ethereum where there are specialized companies called block builders that compile blocks for validators to validate. 3. At fixed intervals, say every 12 seconds, one validator is randomly chosen to propose a block, and some other set of validators is chosen to review the proposed block and vote on it. 4. The randomly chosen validators agree on whether to add the block to the chain. If everyone is doing their job honestly and conscientiously, they'll mostly agree, and the block will be added. 5. The validators get paid fees in Ether. 6. If a validator acts dishonestly or lazily, if it proposes wrong blocks or if it fails to propose or vote on blocks, or if someone turns off the computer running the validator, it can have some or all of its stake taken away as a penalty. I mean, that's the concept. But when I write it out like that, it sounds more manual than it is. Nobody is sitting around reviewing every transaction and agonizing over whether it's legitimate. The validators are just running the official open-source Ethereum software. It is all pretty automatic, and you can run it on a laptop with good backup power and a solid internet connection. The big outlay may be the $40,000 to buy Ether. It's not hard to contribute to the consensus. It's hard to override it but being an honest validator is pretty easy. When we discussed proof-of-work mining, I said that crypto systems are designed to operate on consensus among people with an economic stake in the system. POW systems demonstrate economic stake in a cleverly indirect way. You buy a bunch of computer hardware and pay for a lot of electricity and do a bunch of calculations to prove you really care about Bitcoin. POS systems demonstrate the economic stake directly, you just invest a lot of money in Ethereum and post it as a bond, which proves you care. This is more efficient in two ways. First, it uses less electricity. Burning lots of electricity to do trillions of pointless math calculations a second in a warming world seems dumb. Proof of stake uses, to a first approximation, no electricity. You're simply keeping a list of transactions, and you just have to compile the list once, not 200 quintillion times. The transition to POS cut Ethereum's energy usage by something like 99.95%. Second, POS more directly measures your stake in the system. You demonstrate your stake in Ethereum by 1. owning Ether and 2. putting it at risk to validate transactions. One risk is slashing. If you do nefarious things and other validators notice, they can slash your stake and take away your Ether. Conceptually, the bigger risk is that the value of your Ether will fall while you have it locked up. If you do things to undermine confidence in Ethereum, then the value of your stake will drop. To take control of the POS system and abuse it for your own nefarious purposes, you need to own a lot of Ether. And the more you own, the less nefarious you'll want to be. Proof of stake can buy something like 20 times more security for the same cost, Vitalik has argued. 
Coming up next, you'll hear more from Matt Levine's special crypto issue of Bloomberg Businessweek, narrated by Mark Ladorf. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Staking. Here's how a Bitcoin miner makes money. One, spend dollars to buy computers and electricity. Two, use the computers and electricity to generate Bitcoin. Three, sell the Bitcoin or hold them and hope they go up. Here's how an Ethereum validator makes money. One, buy Ether. Two, lock it up. Three, get paid fees in Ether that are roughly a percentage of the Ether you've locked up. Currently, the fees are around 4%. There's still some computer hardware involved. You have to run software to compile and check transactions, but not much of it. Again, it can be a laptop. The capital investment isn't in computers, but in the relevant cryptocurrency. The transaction is very close to invest a lot of cryptocurrency and then get paid interest on that cryptocurrency. You can make it even easier on yourself. Instead of downloading the software to run a full Ethereum validator node and depositing 32 Ether, you can hand your Ether over to someone else and let them be a validator. It doesn't need to be 32 Ether. If you have one Ether and 31 other people each have one Ether and you all pool your Ether together, then you have enough to stake, validate transactions, and earn fees. And then you each can have a cut of the fees. The work of validating transactions can be completely separated from the actual staking of Ether. And in fact, a lot of Ethereum validation runs through crypto exchanges such as Coinbase, Kraken, and Binance, which offer staking as a product to their customers. The biggest is a thing called Lido Finance, which isn't an exchange but a sort of decentralized staking pool. The customers keep their Ether with the exchange anyway, so they might as well let the exchange stake it for them and earn some interest. Yes. Interest. If you're putting crypto into a staking pool, what it looks like to you is simply earning interest on your crypto. You have 100 tokens, you lock them up for a bit, you get back 103 tokens. The stuff about validating transactions occurs in the background, and you don't really have to worry about it. You just get a percentage return on your money, around 4% now, but maybe less after fees, from locking it up. Before you compare that to the passive income you might earn on, say, a bond, remember, this is paid in volatile ether. Crypto has found a novel way to create yield. We'll talk about others later. Crypto has a whole business of yield farming. But this is one. You can deposit your crypto into an account, and it will pay you interest. It will pay you interest not for the reason banks generally do, because they're lending your money to some other customer who will make use of it, but because you are, in your small way, helping to maintain the security of the transaction ledger. 3. Gas Another difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin is that transaction fees are much more important in Ethereum. The basic reason is that every transaction in Bitcoin is more or less the same. X sends Y Bitcoin to Z. In Ethereum, though, there are transactions like run this complicated computer program with 10,000 steps. That takes longer. 
Thousands of nodes on the Ethereum network have to run and validate each computational step of each contract. If a contract requires a lot of steps, then it will use a lot more of validators' time and computer resources. If it requires infinite steps, it would crash the whole thing. To address this issue, Ethereum has gas, which is a fee that people and smart contracts pay for computation. Each transaction specifies one, a maximum gas limit, basically a number of computational steps, and two, a price per unit of gas. If the transaction uses up all its gas, if it takes more steps to execute than the gas limit, it fails and still pays the gas fee. This deters people from sending super long transactions that clog the network, and it absolutely prevents them from clogging the network forever. In early Ethereum, the gas fees, as well as built-in mining rewards, were paid to the miner who mined a block. Since the move to POS, the built-in rewards are lower, because it's much less expensive to be a validator than a miner, so you don't need to get paid as much. And now some of the gas fees are burned. The ether just vanishes, instead of being paid to validators. The basic result is that ether as a whole is paying less for security under POS than it used to. There are still gas fees, though, and some of them still go to validators. And generally speaking, the more you offer to pay for gas, the faster your transaction will be executed. If Ethereum is busy, paying more for your gas gets you priority for executing your transactions. It is a shared computer where you can pay more to go first. 4. Tokens 1. ERC-20 one thing a smart contract can do in Ethereum is create new cryptocurrencies. These cryptocurrencies are generally called tokens. Why would you want to do this? One reason we already talked about. One, you can make up an arbitrary token that trades electronically. Two, if you do that, people might pay a non-zero amount of money for it. Three, worth a shot, no? This is extremely easy to do in Ethereum. The Ethereum white paper includes a four-line code snippet for implementing a token system on Ethereum. And so there's the Shiba token, a decentralized meme token that evolved into a vibrant ecosystem. It's Dogecoin, but on Ethereum. Easy. It has a woof paper. But there are lots of other reasons to create cryptocurrencies. If you set up some sort of app that does a thing on the Ethereum system and you want to charge people money for doing that thing, what sort of money should you charge them? Or if you set up a two-sided marketplace that connects people who do a thing with people who want the thing done, what sort of money should the people who want the thing use to pay the people who do the thing? Dollars are a possible answer, though an oddly hard one. U.S. dollars don't live on the blockchain, but in bank accounts. Ether is the most obvious answer. You've set up an app in Ethereum, so you should take payment in the currency of Ethereum. But a persistently popular answer is, you should take payment in your own currency. People who add value to your service should be paid in your own special token. People who make use of the service should pay for it in that token. And then if the service takes off, the token might become more valuable. We'll discuss this idea in more detail later. For now, I'll just say that Ethereum has a standard for how these sorts of tokens should be implemented, and it's called ERC-20. And when there are decentralized apps on the Ethereum blockchain, there's a good chance that they'll say they have an ERC-20 token. One essential property of an ERC-20 token is that it's fungible, like dollars or Bitcoin or Ether. If I create an ERC-20 token called MatCoin and mint a billion MatCoins, 
Each of those billion tokens works exactly the same and is exactly interchangeable. They all trade at the same price, and nobody wants or gets any particular identified mat coin. 2. ERC721 There's another way to do a token, though. You could have a series of tokens, each with a number. Token number 1 in the series is different from token number 99 in the sense that token number 1 has the number 1 and token number 99 has the number 99. This is generally referred to as a non-fungible token, or NFT. The most popular Ethereum standard for NFTs is called ERC721, and you'll see that name sometimes. Let me quote a bit of the ERC721 standard. The ERC721 introduces a standard for NFT. In other words, this type of token is unique and can have different value than another token from the same smart contract, maybe due to its age, rarity, or even something else like its visual. Wait, visual? Yes, all NFTs have a numerical variable called token ID. So for any ERC721 contract, the pair contract address, numerical token ID, must be globally unique. That said, a dApp can have a converter that uses the token ID as input and outputs an image of something cool, like zombies, weapons, skills, or amazing kitties. Look how minimal this standard is, despite the zombies and kitties. An NFT consists of a series of numbered tokens, and the thing that makes it an NFT is that it has a different number in its token ID field from the other tokens in its series. If you'd like to imagine that this different number makes it something cool like a zombie or a kitty, you can. Go right ahead. Or if there's a computer program or an Ethereum dApp that looks at your number and says, ah, right, this number corresponds to a zombie with green hair and a fetching scar on his right cheek, then the computer program is free to say that and even serve you up a picture of that zombie. And you are free to believe it. We'll come back to this. It gets weird. Thank you, Matt Levine, and thank you, Mark Ladoff. As a reminder, if you're looking for these episodes in the crypto feed, we'll be publishing them every Sunday through December 18th. If you'd like to read this issue in print form, you can head on over to Bloomberg.com slash The Crypto Story. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Or find us on Twitter, we're at crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producers are Mohamed Farouk and Sharon Barrero. Our associate producers are Ty Butler and Moses Andam. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.